Good morning. I am happy to be back with you. Um, I must say that I always love coming out here because when I preach, I always get to hear something from Bill ahead of time. That is, it's, it's a blessing to me because when you're going to get up and preach, um, you're thinking about all of the stuff that you have prepared and you have to say. And it's easy to get distracted and it's really nice to have a moment where you step back and you think about why you're here. And that is refreshing to me because as I thought about coming this morning, I was thinking about developing a complex because Pastor Tim calls me the closer. I generally do the last sermon every year at the Sugar Grove campus. That week between Christmas and New Year, that's not quite one thing or the other yet. And the last time I was here, it was the second to the last sermon for 1 Thessalonians. It was kind of that wrap-up part in Paul's letters, you know. Not that long ago when we did a series on Colossians, I did at the Sugar Grove campus the end of Colossians, all of that stuff that Paul crams in in the last several verses. And here I am again, and it's the last passage in 2 Thessalonians, and... Not only that, it's the 18th sermon of a series. You know, wrap it up, put a bow on it. I'm beginning to think that perhaps God is trying to tell me something. And I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret here. Preachers, when they're paying attention anyway to what God is doing, learn more from the sermons they preach than you will ever learn. Or at least we should. And just this past week, interestingly, at our all-campus elder meeting, we talked about preaching. And Pastor Phil led the time, and he asked those of us who preach, how do we prepare? What do we do? And when you come to the end of a book or the end of a series, your job is to find the pattern. To remind us of the ground we've covered and what we're supposed to be about doing afterwards. And we've covered a lot of ground in 18 weeks. Two letters to the Thessalonian church. The title of our series has been Ready. And there's good reason for that. You see, Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica are both like and sort of unlike a lot of his other letters. He's concerned about this fledgling church that he started, but in many ways he barely knows because he had to leave them too soon. He seeks their good. He encourages them to get along with one another, follow his teaching. And unlike many of his other letters, there's this significant emphasis on this thing we call eschatology. That wonderful area of doctrine that leads to speculations and passionate discussions, fights really, about the end of the world. And in Thessalonians it even gets better. The second coming, the man of lawlessness. Who gets left behind? I feel the need as an employee of Tyndale House Publishers to put a little TM behind that. When will that happen? Some of you are getting that. Um, Which person do we currently not like that we could paint as the Antichrist? 
I don't know about you, but I have a couple of good candidates and they're currently, well, I probably ought to leave that alone. What do you do to prepare a message like this? You review where you've been, you put in the time studying, and make sure that what you see in the text has been seen by others too. Because if I'm coming up with something completely new and unique, then you better look out. When someone gets up to preach, whether it's myself or Dave or Phil or Tim or Travis or Steve or Josue or Keith, our job is simple. Preach the word. Reveal who God is, what he is about, who we are and how we are to respond to what that passage says. But there's one more thing. Well, there's a lot of other things. But one thing that I ask myself, that I try to remember to ask myself every time I preach. I told the guys this on Monday night. Because if I don't get this one thing right, no matter how much I've studied, no matter how much I've rehearsed and polished words so that the phrase sounds good or I can get the right kind of emotional response, it doesn't matter. Oh, God can and does still use what I say, but I will have missed out on something better. Way back when, when I was in college, far farther in the past than I would like to admit, I took preaching classes, nine-minute sermons. I don't think I know how to do those anymore. But we would preach in class, and the prof sat in this little booth in the back behind a glass screen, and there were lights on the back wall and a clock, and we had to provide a video cassette. Yes, giant video cassette with a tape in it. And while we preached, he sat in the back and critiqued what we were doing. I can still hear Dr. Fink's voice. And one day, as class finished up, and he came out of the back, he handed me the tape, and he said, Kevin, you clearly have the text. And what came next has haunted me for over 20 years. My question is, does the text have you? So, when I have the opportunity to do a wrap-up sermon, and they seem to keep coming, I think possibly that God is telling me something that I need as much as anyone here does. The Thessalonian believers lived at a time and a place very different from our own. And yet, somehow, very much the same. They suffered for their beliefs. They saw the signs of decadence and degradation around them in their culture. Some were afraid that they had missed the return of the Lord, and some thought he was coming soon, and so they didn't have to do anything. They loved one another. They were examples to the churches around them, Paul tells us, but they also needed encouragement and were prone to believing false doctrine about the return of Christ. They needed to have their hearts set at ease about those who died, to have disruptive members corrected, and they needed to be encouraged to stand firm. So for all of our differences, they were very much like us. A people under construction, set apart, God's children, but full of blemishes and warts and not yet grown into what we shall be. I'm inclined to heed the word of the writer of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. 
and as unique as we all are, whatever our backgrounds, wherever we come from, there are also certain fundamental things that are true of us all. Today, we live in a world of chaos. There is a surface level of stability and peace, at least for us here in the West. But there are wars and rumors of wars. And for some, it is truly perilous to claim the name of Christ and follow Him. For those of us in the West, it seems at the very least that we are soon going to be forced to choose. Are we going to stand up to discomfort and ridicule for our faith? Will we be willing to stand for Christ? And to do so in a manner that is fitting of our Lord? Or will we make another choice? On the one hand, will we cower? On the other, will we retaliate? And in both cases, motivated by fear? So today, we come to the end of Paul's second letter to his church at Thessalonica. This church that is both faithful and in danger of teetering. And isn't that the way of it? Lord, we believe, but we are weak. Our faith is small and we're like the disciples, afraid in the boat, scattered and afraid after the crucifixion, forgetful of the things that we have seen and known. And I think that neither our situation nor our character are so very different today from the first century church. Thessalonica. Our clothes and language have changed. We have better technology and probably hygiene. But Paul's words call to us as clearly as it did to those believers 2,000 years ago. He asks us, even as he asked them, are you ready? Ready to follow Christ? Ready to believe and to live as his body, not if in spite of the difficulties, but precisely because of them, in them, through them? Are we ready and willing to be His? And so today we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And we're going to find, as we read, five actions of a ready believer, a ready church. And this is what Paul says. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of those who do not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as fellow believers. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Please uh, pray with me. Father, as we conclude this sermon series, we ask that you would show us, that you would remind us of where we've come and what you would have for us, that we would truly be ready to follow you in all things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verse 13. 
First action. Do good. In fact, Paul goes so far as to tell us, don't ever get tired of doing good. I think there's an echo of Galatians 6, 9 here. Let us not become weary in well-doing. Do good. All of you. Some of your translations say brothers, some brothers and sisters. And the word that Paul uses refers to the entire membership of the body, regardless of gender or age or anything else. Do good. And this directly follows Paul's exhortation against being idle in verses 6 to 12, and very likely what he was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, when we learned that there were apparently some who did not feel the need to work. They were weary of doing good. And Paul makes it clear that doing good extends to our work as well as what we do for others. And one commentator that I read in my preparation makes a direct connection between the words Paul uses here and the words used of God's act of creation in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Those words are important. Namely, that God's creation itself is an act of doing good. That when God created, he created an ordered, creative, proper, and not disordered or idle thing. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we see in these earliest stories that we know of of God, that he is active, not sitting idly by. Gregory Beale is a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, and he says that Paul's language deliberately evokes the Old Testament idea of following God's creation order, of faithful obedience, of living as God calls us to. That is doing good. A ready Christian, then, is not simply one who believes the right things about God or even about how we are to live in this world. A ready Christian is one who is actively doing good. And we are not ready if we say or claim to believe the right things about God, but we don't do them. In our chaotic world, we show ourselves to be ready when we do good for others. Paul says, uh, as for all, as Paul says in Galatians 6.10. And, and James, who often we think of as being sort of in the opposite camp of Paul and some things, he challenges us in a similar manner in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. Paul and James agree. Do good. Faith and good cannot be separated. In a day and age where being a Christian is viewed with as much skepticism as the first century, it is even more imperative for us to do good tirelessly. 
How are we known by our neighbors? By those who oppose us. Are we known for doing good or for looking down our noses in judgment at others? Which do we think is more likely to make a difference to an apathetic and increasingly hostile world? Doing good is sometimes difficult. It requires that we stand firm, as Paul said in chapter 2, verse 15. It can require, as Jesus taught, that we turn the other cheek, which is not easy. If I'm honest, when I am wronged, I don't want to do good. I want to lash out, to defend myself, get angry with those who oppose what I know what is right. And sometimes doing good requires us to do the even harder thing. We have to stand up to those who refuse to obey. Paul says that we are to shun the faithless for the good of all. He's not speaking about non-believers in verses 14 and 15. He says, pay attention to one another. It's almost as if Paul is purposely defying our contemporary injunction to stay out of one another's business. Instead, he says, take special note of those who do not obey the instructions of this letter. Seems like he's probably most specifically referring to verses 6 to 12. Don't be idle. Don't be busy. Or be busy, don't be busybodies. But the entire letter is really also in mind. After all, it would seem that at least part of the troubles of the Thessalonian believers related to wrong views regarding the return of Christ or the coming of the Antichrist or man of lawlessness. You see, the faithless, the not ready believer, is the one who refuses to follow instruction and then follows their own way instead, believing that what they agree to on paper is enough. They're deceived because they are not as connected to God as they ought to be because they are not listening. They seem to believe that knowing the truth is enough. And this is something a believer cannot do. James essentially tells us, you believe? Good for you. So do the demons. Next. And John, in 1 John 1, 6 and 7 says... If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, that is, don't do the things we're supposed to do, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, we have to live in the truth as well as know it. Paul says, don't associate with a faithless believer. And sometimes we get hung up here in discussions on church discipline and rules, and those things are important, but if we reduce it to that, we risk missing the point. There is only one reason for shunning, and that is to bring a person back to fellowship both with God and one another. 
It's not because we have something that we don't like about what they're doing or that we're uncomfortable with. It's not to give legitimacy to personal grudges or matters of legitimate debate within the church. It is restoration. And sometimes we treat wayward believers in ways that can never bring them back. When we shun out of malice or harbor ill will, we are not following Paul's instructions. We are not following after God. Paul says, these are not enemies. They are fellow believers who have to be warned. He says that it will bring shame on them. The Greek culture was a shame and honor culture. That's the way it's talked about. The idea is that Shame was used as a tool, not just a club. Today we hear the word shame and we think evil. But that's not necessarily what's going on here. It was designed to keep an orderly, a good society. It was a motivator to do what is right. And Paul is saying, use the culture you live in to bring someone to their senses. Shame can be a very important and even good thing if we wield it with a proper attitude and goal. A ready Christian stays away from faithless believers to protect the body and to redeem the brother. It is for the good of all. Third, verse 16, Paul tells us to be peaceful. There's a pattern here. All three actions so far are about the way we live with others. A ready Christian does good, corrects wrong among fellow believers, and now lives peacefully. See, last words matter. And Paul's last words in this letter, name our Lord twice. Verse 16 is the Lord of peace, and then again in verse 18 is our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord of peace. Sovereign, ruler of peace. It's hard to be at peace when you're worried about your position in society. The Thessalonian believers were. When you're worried about how you will be viewed by your family and friends who do not believe. These are believers who left everything. They left their family beliefs because of this. When you're worried that you're going to suffer for your faith, And Paul makes it clear throughout the letters to the Thessalonians that we will be persecuted and that we will need to persevere. It's hard to be at peace. And at the end of 1 Thessalonians, we saw Paul's prescription for living at peace in the chaos of our world. I think it is no accident that he repeats that plea here. And it's a prayer. Because we can't sustain peace on our own. There are enemies of peace both within the church and without. There are people and forces spoiling for a fight. Are we willing to remember that our God is a God of peace? Or do we secretly wish that he was a God of war? Do we take the legitimate wrath that we know is his at our own wrongdoings, and especially those of the world around us, and take pleasure in the idea of battle. 
Or do we ask for God to give us peace in every time and in every way? Ours is a world of chaos and uncertainty. Politicians don't bring us peace, even though that is what they claim they will create. One could argue that our current presidential race is proof positive that their very rhetoric, whether they are on the left or the right, drives the very opposite of peace. Our accumulation of stuff does not bring us peace. It just brings a craving for more. Our relationships, we're going to have a sermon series on this starting next week, are fraught with peril as much as peace many times. Paul tells us that it is God alone who can grant us peace, a sustained and complete peace, a peace that defies the circumstances that shows the supernatural power of God. The peace of a God who Paul prays would be with us all. How do we find this peace? We find it when we draw close to God. And how do we do this? That's what the letters to the Thessalonians have been about. Stand firm in 2.15. Be faithful. Do good. Follow his instructions. And isn't it amazing when we're left to our own devices, peace becomes hard to find. When we follow after God and do His will, we draw close to Him, and His peace covers us. How can it not? It is, after all, Paul says, a part of who He is. He is the Lord of peace. It's not just a title. It's a descriptor of who He is. Fourth, we need to mind who we listen to. It's tempting when you read a verse like verse 17 to say, Great, Paul, you took the pen from Silas's hand and you signed the letter. What's the big deal? Why do you call attention to this? It's tempting to treat this as an interesting historical detail and footnote concerning the way letters in the first century were written. I like history. I like finding out these things. They're interesting, but what difference do they make? I believe there's more going on than that. You see, Paul is claiming authority over against those false teachers and false teachings that have disturbed and confused the Thessalonian believers in this book and in 1 Thessalonians. He is essentially saying here that if you are a ready Christian, you will listen to those with authority, true authority. Those who speak and teach the word on God's behalf. Sometimes, as Christians, we act as if we believe it's all up to us. I've got to figure it out on my own. And culturally, we have been taught that we have to discover what is true for us. What is our truth? Our own personal truth. Sort of the Oprah effect. Paul doesn't agree. His authority matters. And so he says, I'm writing this. You see, the pastors that we have, the teachers that we have matter. Village Bible Church is a church dedicated to discipleship. And sometimes I fear that 
as Christians, we make a mistake when we think about this. And I myself have made the comment that I want people to become self-feeders. And it's a noble goal. As a parent, I want my children to grow up and to see them become independent and able to take care of themselves. And I know, as a parent of a child with autism, that to a certain degree, that will never be possible. And it reminds me that the older I get, and hopefully the wiser I get, the more I recognize the often subtle problem lurking in the idea of becoming a self-feeder. And that is that we feel like it's always up to us as individuals. And it's one thing to become a person who seeks after God, who checks after the scriptures as the Bereans did in Acts. It's quite another to be in the situation where we think that we can be believers on our own, that we don't need one another, that we can figure it out on our own, thank you very much, that we don't need one another, that we don't need authorities in our lives. Paul makes it clear that he does not agree. Sometimes I think we have taken the idea of the priesthood of all believers and turned it into the pastorhood of all believers. And there's a difference. You see, a priest's job is to be a mediator, the go-between, the one who intercedes on behalf of another. The priest's job in the Old Testament was to bridge the gap between the people and God. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, hey, something's changed. There's only one God and one meteor, the man Christ Jesus. But the pastor's job, Phil's job, Keith's job, it's different. The pastor is the shepherd, leading and guiding, showing safe paths and finding the right places to graze and drink. The pastor's job is to keep the wolves at bay and to care for the sheep. He is not an intermediary but a guide. You see, Paul's authority, the authority of the apostle, the elder, is to safeguard the sheep. When he writes, when he speaks, that's his job. We are not individuals left to our own devices to survive in the wild. We are a body, Christ's body. Our faith is more than what we personally believe as individuals. And we cannot follow after God on our own. We need one another. Be careful whom you listen to. Start with those that God has placed over you. Trust me when I say that the people who get up here and preach are not infallible. But we seek God's will to lead well, to be a good example. We're supposed to test those we listen to, who we follow. Who do we allow to influence our thinking? Is the signature one you can trust? Do the words speak truth? Or do they flatter and caress? Telling you what you want to hear so that they can sell you a bill of goods and lead you on a false and dangerous path. You see, the ready Christian minds who they listen to. It's crucial. Finally, The benediction. 
live in grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. A benediction. A closing thought. Something that in liturgical churches they do at the end of the service. The sincerely letter at the end of Paul's letters. It's a blessing. But it's more than a formality. More than a polite religious way of ending a letter or sermon. Paul begins his letters and ends them with very similar words. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace and peace. Peace and grace. You see, grace is at the heart of Paul's mission to the church at Thessalonica. It is at the heart of God's mission. Above all, we need grace. Without it, we can't do good. We cannot shun or even know evil and faithlessness. And certainly, we cannot know true peace or true authority. Grace is a gift we can never earn. It is the never hidden, often rejected heart of God himself. Grace gives us another chance when we didn't even deserve the first one. Grace withholds judgment for a little while more so that we might heed the call of God. Come to our senses and return to him. Grace tells us that here is a way back when we cannot see it. It shows us the way even when, especially when, we only desire our own path, which cannot lead us anywhere but to ruin. Grace is not ours. It is God's. Paul's benediction is the gospel in its most condensed form. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Our Lord is not the world around us. Caesar is not Lord, Paul says, nor is the culture around you or the laws of humanity. Sovereignty, true authority, belongs to God. He is the ruler of all. The God who comes to us, who suffers with us as one of us, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, whose very name means grace. Yahweh saves. This is God's heart. And Paul calls us to live in it. Not to receive it, not to be thankful for it. He calls on God's blessing for all believers, that we would be blanketed by it, that it would always be with us. And when grace is with us, we're able to follow Paul's instructions. We're able to put on God's character. We're able to put away worry and false teaching. We're able to correct one another in love and do good works for all. We're able to live with one another and with the world around us in peace despite the chaos. And so I come back to where I started. All too often, I'm not ready to live this way.
the way of Christ. What do I need to hear today? That sometimes I pay lip service to grace and seek my rights or retribution for wrongs real or perceived. I don't truly seek peace, but selfishly seek my own way. And as we close this message in this series, we need to remember this. Being ready, above all, means that we live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we let it seep down into our very bones, nourishing and strengthening us, starving our weak bodies of flesh and feeding His Spirit within us. In this way, we become like Him. And we extend His grace to those around us. First to the body of Christ, and then to the world. And today, I pray that we would be ready. That we would, as Paul says, abide in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.